Bridgetown. Uh, if we haven't met yet, my name is Bethany, and like uh, Gavin said, would you please grab your Bibles and turn uh, with me in them to Matthew chapter 20. A few years ago, an article came out in Time magazine about the millennial generation, noting that we were, in so many words, the most narcissistic and entitled generation America has ever seen. Big thanks to Time Magazine for that encouragement this morning. Now, uh, this isn't just rhetoric. The writer of this article backed up his statement with some cold, hard facts. Things like 40% of millennials believe they should be promoted every two years, regardless of performance. That according to the National Institute of Health, narcissistic personality disorder is nearly three times as high for millennials as opposed to those in the generation that's now 65 and older. And the crowning jewel, a study of youth and religion found that the guiding morality for 60% of millennials in any situation is that they'll be able to just feel what is right. Now, I'm not here to knock millennials. I am one. And I like us quite a bit, actually. Uh, but I do think this kind of information provokes one to ask why. If you do a bit more research, you'll learn that there are some unique facts about our generation that contributes to our sense of entitlement or narcissism. We are, statistically speaking, the most educated generation to date. We're also the most diverse, which has afforded us this great gift of learning and having lots of perspectives that aren't just rooted in kind of a one-dimensional or linear uh, ideal. We're also the most healthy, which is encouraging this morning as you eat your Cinnabon or whatever it is that you're eating. Uh, we statistically exercise more, we smoke less, thank you, dare, and uh, we eat healthier uh, than most people. We're also the most awarded generation, and I use the word awarded very lightly uh, because everybody got a prize. Do you know what I'm saying? And uh, we are the most technologically advanced, globalizing not just our relationships, but our productivity and our creativity and development and business, making us fairly successful people, and not just in terms of America, but really at a global level. Now, this isn't all bad. Obviously, what I listed here uh, has served us in thousands of ways and really been a good gift to society at large. But it's not all good either. Sociologists and psychologists alike reason that these facts and opportunities have both supported and enforced a have-it-all belief system that centers around what they would argue to be new definitions of fairness and equity, all of which are rooted in a what-I-deserve-and-what-I-am-owed narrative. Now, the problem with this way of thinking is that at a fundamental level, as one author put it, it is the great enemy of human flourishing. Take it lightly. Uh, its implications far outreach a relational impact because this narrative is functionally self-sabotaging and self-destructive. It's rooted in a warped sense of justice, one that says, I am owed what I deserve, and the benefits uh, are there simply because I exist. And while a lot of us, myself included, would roll my eyes at this and be like, how ridiculous, I would imagine that we, no matter our generation, can relate at least at some level. The impact of this millennial belief system may feel new to some or even provocative, but the reality is the spirit behind it is age old. 
Today we are picking up in Matthew's gospel where Jesus will actually be responding to this kind of thinking. But before we get into chapter 20, I want us to look back just a few verses at what we read a few weeks ago, just to help provide a bit of context for where we're picking up today. Now you remember from a few weeks ago, Christian taught that Jesus had just finished this interaction with a man called the rich young ruler. And he had just told his disciples that it was hard for someone with wealth to enter the kingdom of heaven. Look at chapter 19. It should just be just a few verses back and we're going to pick up at verse 25. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, who then can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Peter answered him, we have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? And Jesus said to them, truly, I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the, the son of man sits on the glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on the 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and many who are last will be first. Jesus continues chapter 20 verse 1. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard, into his vineyard, period. <laughs> About nine in the morning, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go and work in the vineyard and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went and he went out again about noon and about three in the afternoon and did the same thing. And then about five in the afternoon, he went out and found still others standing around. And he asked them, why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? Because, they said, no one has hired us. And he said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. When the evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. The workers who were hired about five in the afternoon came and each received a denarius. So when those who came who when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more. But each one of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These who were hired last worked only an hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, I am not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want to with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first and the first will be last. Okay, so we pick up in verse one and we find Jesus actually responding to Peter's question in chapter 19, verse 27. And in it, Peter had just encountered someone who wouldn't sell all that they had to follow Jesus. And so he asked in so many words, what's in it for us? Or maybe better said, what do we have or will we have since we've left everything to follow you? So Jesus responds and he says that he and the disciples will be with him at the renewal of all things and they will be judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Not a bad gig. And then he says this, many who are first will be last and those who are last first. A statement that while subtle and subversive in many ways had the power to flip Peter's thinking on its head. And I believe that was the point. 
Jesus continues on in verse 1 of chapter 20 and says, The kingdom of heaven is like, which is our cue that Jesus is about to tell us a really important story. In the first half of it, we see him describe what would have been commonplace for the hearers. A landowner in an agrarian society needed to hire day laborers to work his fields, so he went out early in the morning, he went to the labor pool, and he hired a number of workers. He then agrees to pay them a standard wage and a denarius a day to which everyone agreed. We then read that he goes out again around 9 a.m., sees a few workers standing around, invites them to work. He does this again at noon and then again at 3, inviting more and more to come work in his fields. And then finally we see him go out one more time around 5 p.m., and this time he asks why those not working were just standing around, to which they respond, no one had hired them. And again, he invites them to work in the field. Now, there are a few important things I want us to note before we move on in our story that I think are really helpful in grasping the impact of what Jesus is saying here. First, it's important to note that this is more of an agreement or a contractual situation than that of a slave to owner. The workers hired here were most likely poor and of low standing, societally speaking. Many scholars believe that they could be weak or sick, or maybe they were the elderly of the community, and many of them were targets of discrimination. And that makes this parable, to me, a bit more stunning. These workers were dependent day to day for the work that they found making the landowner's employment that much more significant. Next, notice that he pays them fairly and generously. A denarius a day would have been enough to get what you would have needed to eat and live for the day, and to them that was a generous act, especially considering the workers. Now, finally, we see that this landowner goes out five times during the day to hire workers. And we have no idea what he needed for his land. We know that he was in the vineyard. Uh, we don't know if he had enough workers or not, but we are left to wonder a few things about this. Why not, if you're this landowner, and we think with wealth, why not send your servants out for you? And why, especially at the end of the day, would you hire laborers for such a short amount of time? Whatever the story or context here, the imagery seems to point us to the generosity of the landowner and the value he places on those that he employs. Now, all of this, I think, helps set the stage for what happens next. In verse 8, we see that the day ends and it's time to get paid and things get sticky, as it often does with money. The landowner asks, for his, asks his foreman to pay the workers, starting with the last hired. So those hired at 5 p.m., they get a denarius, and wow, those who were hired a little earlier get excited and think, well, if they worked for so little and got this much, how much more are we going to get? But then they, too, receive one denarius. It's like you can hear the record scratching. Do you know what I mean? Like the, or is that it? That's the noise? I asked Gerald earlier. He didn't, we don't know. We just went, ah, and that's what I hear. It's like, ah, uh. and like a 90s, like, you know, in the screen. So they complain to the landowner calling out the injustice about not getting paid and only getting paid uh, what the people who only worked an hour got paid. And basically they say, what's the deal? Look, we've been working in the heat all day. It doesn't make any sense. Now, what we see in the landowner here, I think, is significant because he is actually being just. He's paying everyone what he committed to pay them. But his generosity exceeds their sense of justice. And so he answers them and reminds them that they agreed to work for what they got paid and that there was no injustice happening. He goes on to say that they can, he can pay anyone however much he wants to and reveals their ingratitude by calling out their envy of his generosity. And then to end, I think, in a literary work of genius, we read that the landowner now definitively says, the last will be first and the first will be last. 
Now, two more things before we move on. I know this is a little bit like, um, we're almost through the text, and then there's some good stuff for us. I want to talk about the elephant in the room when it comes to this text. The landowner pays all the laborers the same, regardless of the hours that they worked. And that doesn't make sense, at least to me. Not in our worldview or my worldview. While the pay was agreed upon, it seems to reason that you would get paid what you deserve and what you worked for. There was no logic to what the landowner was doing, at least in how he paid the first hour workers. There was no rhyme to his reason. And while, again, he was perfectly just, his generosity disrupted their sense of fairness, causing them to question his actual goodness. Second, I want us to note that the landowner pays the last first. As far as storytelling goes, this is a provocative moment that the listeners would have questioned. Why pay those who worked the least first? What are we, the listeners, supposed to hear in that? Then in his final statement, we see him emphasize a line that is in many ways a commentary to the listeners, of social, uh, to the listeners on social and economic power, which was significant, but also maybe even greater still, a commentary about the kingdom of God, that the last will be first. This statement may be familiar to a lot of us and is one I think that can feel benign upon first hearing it or even celebrated if we consider ourselves the last. But for many of us, like Peter and the hearers of the story, it could be more problematic than we think. You see, it rubs us, at least some of us, the wrong way, especially those of us in the West, because our metrics for blessing or reward or compensation, especially uh, in our paradigm in this parable, isn't quite up to our standards. In fact, some would argue it's the antithesis of what most of us believe about the return of our efforts. Justice here is outdone by extravagant generosity, generosity undeserved and unearned, and a system of reward and return that seems impartial and imbalanced to a fault. So how do we make sense of what Jesus is doing here? What is he actually getting at? Before we can answer that, I think we have to first come to grips with two profound truths that we find within our story. Now, the first is that of what I'm calling disproportionate grace, which like Gary Brashears is like not impressed by. Trust me, it's not a delicate word and it was the best I could come up with. But I think it speaks to what I'm trying to get at here. Now, I don't want the phrasing of that, you know, to um, scare you away or maybe even trigger you from that one weird youth service you went to back in the day. What I'm talking about here is the kind of grace that is offered out of proportion or disproportionately to our deserving earning or effort. This kind of grace actually dismantles our paradigm for blessing and reward, which is really disruptive. And I think if we allow it to, it will ultimately interrupt our attachment to things like status and ego and achievement and influence, and it will reorient us from the ground up. Priest and theologian Justin Holcomb defined this kind of grace as God's uncoerced initiative and pervasive extravagant demonstration of care and favor. Grace in the kingdom of God, as we see it in our text, challenges our assumption of what it means to get what you deserve or what you think you deserve. Grace is gift. It, in the language of N.T. Wright, isn't the story of a thing that one person can have a lot of and someone else a little. The story told by Jesus here is one that's meant to flip not only Peter's thinking, but our thinking as well. Jesus, in this parable, is stating that we are not reducible to our productivity, and then often in the kingdom of God, things don't look fair, at least in human terms. It's not based on merit or status or earning, but on the reality that Jesus promises us everything. 
and at the same time asks of us everything in return. As Dallas Willard once said, grace is opposed to earning, which means that true grace will confront the areas within us where we don't actually believe that. And it will also challenge our belief of that for others as well. If we see nothing else in the story, I think we see a profound pride of those who assume they're more deserving over and against another based on what they have done or how they have lived. There is a gross contrast between those who worked the last hour and those who worked all day. And the greatest discrepancy being that those in the last hour were in greatest need. And still, it's crazy because we see the frustration and jealousy and complaint by the day workers that the landowner shouldn't show them such generosity. All of this ultimately revealing their pride and inability to see themselves rightly in the eyes of the landowner as well as their prejudice against those who they would deem less deserving of his grace. Scholar Stanley Hauerwas speaks to this reality when he says, God's grace is the grace of truth, refusing to hide from us the character of our edgy belief of those whom we think undeserving. Disproportionate grace will always move us beyond our understanding of what is right or fair or deserved. It will never be less than just, but it will often go beyond it, which will ultimately call us to expand our understanding of kingdom justice, which leads us to our next truth that we find here in our text. Justice uh, is generous, as that's how we see it here. Justice is complicated, I think, for lots of reasons these days. So I'd like to, if I can, clarify what I mean by that. Justice in this text is based on the integrity and character of faithfulness. It is justice based on rightness, what is true and what is right. But the kind of justice we see in our text was something altogether different. The justice the workers asked for was influenced by their circumstances and opinions about what they thought they deserved. And this is the kind of justice that I think oversimplifies complex realities, propagates false superiority, and really, though probably unintentional, perpetuates the oppression of the marginalized in lots of ways, meaning, the justice as we see it demanded in this text is not actually justice. Scholar, NT, or scholar R.T. France, all the initials with these guys. B.A., well anyway, yeah, that means what you think it means. Scholar R.T. France, took some of you a minute to get there, but scholar R.T. France says that Jesus will often offend our sense of justice, which begs the question, what do we do with our offense? The landowner's excessive propensity to give and care for the last hour workers, for many of us, violates our definition of fairness. This kind of justice to us looks rash and undisciplined, but quite the opposite is true. What we see revealed about justice in our text is that we are only just to the extent that the least of these, the undeserving, the underprivileged, the last pick, often the poor and the old and the disabled receive care and honor. Justice, as we see it here in our text, is born of grace, born out of the righteousness of the one giving it, not on the requirements of the one receiving it. In verse 15, the landowner asks the complaining workers, are you envious because I am generous? That question restated may sound something like, are you mad because I'm good? In the kingdom of God, our sense and understanding of justice will be challenged. Justice is God setting things to right, and it often, almost always starts with the undeserving. 
Jesus is and always will be after the common good of all. And justice on his terms is rooted in an upside down, very unpredictable kingdom. God's disproportionate grace and God's generous justice are central to our understanding of the kingdom. They both, when received, free us from the tyranny of the metrics of this world and draw out of us the beauty and the humility and the mercy that we see demonstrated in the life of our rabbi. But like we asked earlier, how do we make sense of what Jesus is doing here? What's he really after? At the heart of our parable, we find Jesus inviting us to see ourselves in this story, right where we are, and then pointing us towards who we are to become. If you're anything like me, you'll likely assume you are the first hour worker, maybe the second or the third, depending on where you fall. But when we realize that this isn't a story about earning or merit or reward, we may just find that we are closer to the last than the first and that Jesus doesn't leave us in that place. The call for us and disciples alike is to become the landowner to embody grace, to do justice generously, and to embrace the last becoming the first. But how? It's been said that you can't receive what you haven't first, you can't give what you haven't first received. And when it comes to grace, this is no less true. If we are to embody it, we have to first receive it and experience it, which means we're gonna have to come face to face with the reality that in Jesus, you get what you don't deserve. You get hope in salvation. You get joy for sadness. You get mercy for your sins. Embodying grace will mean extending to others what we have been freely given by God. Becoming not only a physical and visible representation of that gift, but a spiritual and a relational one as well. Practically, this means we will choose and have to deliberately choose, and some of us even discipline ourselves to choose to love others extravagantly and unconditionally. We'll have to move from reducing others to what we see them do or think they are doing or what they have accomplished to seeing them as people in need of God's love. The act of embodying grace will demand our continual surrender of our prejudice, and we need to be honest about that, of our preference and of our judgment, which will not be easy. It will demand confronting your own self, but it will change you. It will make you more like your rabbi. Grace, I believe, is a cyclical gift. The more you receive, the more you want to give, and the more you give, the more you will receive. Next, I think we need to do justice generously. It's easy enough, yeah? Everybody's got that down. Now, at the heart of justice, at least as we see it in this text, is to consider the undeserving among us. And not just consider, but actually move towards, bless, and care and honor those who we think are undeserving. Now, we often have a category for justice in our minds. Can I just speak to us honestly, church? I wanna shake this up a bit because I feel like this is just a space where God was moving in me this week. And by moving, I mean convicting and spanking me at a lot of levels. Because most of the time, the reality is the undeserving in our minds are not just those on the streets or those suffering financially. In my experience, at least in the church, the undeserving, undeserving often look like those who we resent for getting something we want but don't have. Why do they get you fill in the blank when I've given up so much to follow Jesus? Why does that person who has given you their whole life suffer with this sickness while others who have not are well? 
Why do they seem free of consequences of sin when my life is riddled with them? Justice is not just for those who have less than we do. The justice in our text speaks to the disposition of the heart towards those we feel do not deserve the gift of grace. Doing justice generously means loving and giving to those we deem unworthy. And yes, that often falls under the category of our discrimination of others based on wealth or education or socioeconomic realities, but it is also our neighbor. It's also those who are very much like us. Finally, we are to embrace the last becoming the first. Jesus ends his teaching with this statement, the last will be first and the first will be last. And make no mistake, this is a profound declaration of the kingdom. And in it, I think there are two meanings here. In this statement, we find an invitation. Jesus is stating that his kingdom will be filled with the least of these. So if you're uncomfortable with it, you better get comfortable soon. That those the world or his followers even would despise or look down upon or bypass, it will be those who fills his kingdom, and it will be those to whom Jesus elevates and honors. The invitation for us here is to join him in doing so to show spiritual generosity in every sense of that word and at the same time to consider how we are not so different from those in this position. Next, in his statement, we find a warning to those of us who consider ourselves first, those of us who have sacrificed and given all that we have to follow him, who do what needs to be done, who look and sound the way you would expect us to. Our warning is that our faithfulness and surrender are and will not be merit badges that promote us to the front of the line or ahead of someone else. Instead, they will simply be a right response to the gift of grace we have been given. If I can be honest, this text uh, is and has been terribly confronting for me this week. I've always identified more with the first worker, it's like full confession, then I have the last, and the story of the prodigal, I'm always like totally older brother, never prodigal, like, and struggled immensely with that. It's not hard for me to move towards a spirit of false martyrdom when needed, you know, especially in my time with Jesus, I've given you everything, I'm a pastor, blah, you know, it's just like this recipe for like entitlement. It's really unbelievable. I wish it wasn't true of me, but that is true, and it's been very much a part of my journey. And it's true, I think, that God can feel disappointing and frustrating at times. I imagine that some of you have felt that way even this morning, that his justice and blessing and generosity feels disproportionate to the sacrifice you've made. And I think that's a real feeling. But what I've learned is that often my frustration and disappointment reveals more about what I believe about the kingdom and what I think I deserve in it than it does anything about what God is really like. In our story, the landowner never changes the terms of blessing or justice. It's the people who change their mind about what is fair. I think this text invites us and is inviting us to realign our thinking, to reframe our understanding and vision for what it means to live in this upside down kingdom. The warning for me and I think for us today is that our attitude of spiritual entitlement, what we believe we've earned or deserve from God, whether it be conscious or subconscious, and our inability to remember the grace we've been given and so desperately need can and will hinder not only people from coming into the kingdom, but also from advancing it. Like I said, I've been freshly struck by this teaching of Jesus for many reasons, 
But what has made it, I think, most compelling to me is that this teaching comes on the tail end of Jesus heading to Jerusalem to die. This parable isn't something he's spouting off for religious reasons or for dogmatic purposes, but I think more as a gift of preparation for life without him on earth. This teaching is a signpost to his disciples of what to look for, of what to cultivate, and how to love. In and through Jesus' imminent death, he will become every character in our story. Yes, he is the landowner, but he will also become the last hour workers as he takes on the infirmity and the limitations of sin for the sake of us all. This is grace embodied. This is justice served. This is the first becoming the last. The kingdom of heaven is like this. 